0: So let me let me say one thing as I was thinking about yesterday. And and one caveat, I can't remember if I said it in this class or a different or the first one, so I'm just going to say it anyways. We were talking about the Holy Spirit and and I can't remember exactly what I said about the giving of the Holy Spirit, but the primary purpose that the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit is for fellowship with the Father. It is not the only reason that God gives us the Holy Spirit, okay? And I think I might have made it sound that way yesterday, but that is not what I meant for it to sound like. Often we think the Holy Spirit is there. It just teaches us. It just keeps us out of trouble. It convicts us of sin. It does do all those things, but the primary reason that the Lord gave you His Holy Spirit was so that you could experience the presence of the Father, So it's kind of like this. We're going to get on a bus tomorrow morning and drive a whopping 88 miles home, all right? I know some of you are jealous. And my kids and my wife will be waiting in the parking lot. And when I get off that bus, my kids are going to come running across the parking lot, regardless if there's cars coming or whatever. They're coming, okay? And they're going to hug me and kiss me and want me to hold them even though they're big kids and I'm not very strong and oh it's just gonna be glorious and I'm gonna get all my stuff and I'm put in a van we're gonna go home and then they're just gonna leave me and they're gonna go start playing their uh, 3DS's and Legos and they won't care that I'm that's it that's how long it's gonna last okay but when they go to play they're gonna play with so much more. I'm about just lost it right there on the backpack. To, this way, you don't bring backpacks in here, okay? For that very reason. They're gonna, they're gonna play with freedom. They're gonna play with joy because the presence of their dad, the proximity of their dad. Does that make sense? And then they'll be playing and then somebody will start yelling and I'll have to go in there and there'll have to be some discipline there'll have to be some guidance given and that's one of the reasons I'm there, right? But the the primary reason that my kids need a relationship with me is so they can crawl up in my lap and be loved on and experience the the freedom and the joy of having dad around. Okay. That, that's what the Holy Spirit's primary purpose is, right? That's, it's, to, it's to put you into the arms of the Father. And if you did the devotion this morning, that's exactly what that devotion was about. That, that, that Spirit, the Holy Spirit that the Lord gives us is the Spirit that helps us cry, Abba, Father. Intimate, fatherly relationship with God. And you can't have that kind of relationship apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. All right? Does the Holy Spirit do other things? Absolutely. He does a ton. But the primary reason is so you can sit in the arms of your Father. Okay? Just want to make that clear. I didn't I didn't want to say that the Holy Spirit was only so you I mean he he has many jobs and duties, okay? So, day 1 we were made to do what? I'm reviewing, by the way. I mean, again, don't say day one like he made light and darkness. We're not going over just what was created. Day one in here, we talked about we were made for what? That's what I heard. Okay. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Okay, good. Thank you, good Presbyterian catechized child. All right. Yes. We're, we're made to glorify the Lord and enjoy Him forever. And God calls us to be fruitful and multiply. And He calls us to never be the center of the universe. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve were tempted to do. And when they took of that fruit, they were trying to force themselves into the center of the universe. And it wrecked everything. And we talked about how pervasive just the, the marring of creation has been uh, as it pertains to selfishness and that we all deal with it to some degree. That it that it's, could be a huge thing in our life or a little struggle in our life, but nobody really is absent from the presence of some selfishness in their lives. And so then yesterday we got to the good news, how Christ frees us from that. He breaks that, that hold that selfishness has on us And He makes us into new creations. He gives us a new heart, a new spirit. He models for us what selfless living looks like. And then He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can continue to actually live selflessly. Okay? So what does that look like? Because we want to leave here with some kind of mission. Like if we're called to glorify God... Wow. I'm just spit everywhere. Sorry. Be careful up here. These are my people, so they're okay. right. Um... We're called to glorify God and to make, go and make disciples, right? So how do we do that? How do we do that um, in this life? How do we do that selflessly? Well, here's the answer. But when the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked Him a question to test Him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then Jesus immediately tags this in as well. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, God first, you second, and he ne- I mean the other second, and He never mentions you. Now that doesn't mean that he's, He doesn't care about you or you can just do whatever, all right? But I think that needs to be said. That when He says, here's everything that the prophets, the law, all my teaching, Jesus says, here's what you can boil it down to. Love God with everything you have. Love other people with everything you have. The end. You are valuable in the eyes of God. Jesus and the Father, God, they, they literally loved you to death. Jesus died so, to show you the love of the Father. But life is not about us. It's about God and His purposes. So, first our mission is to obey that first command. What do you think that means? What do you think it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, Soul and strength, selflessly. That's not rhetorical by the way. This is where you say things. And I tell you if you're right or wrong. I'm just kidding. We won't judge you. Judgment free zone. I am going to judge you if you don't say anything though, okay so Okay, loving the church, Good. That's a good one. To jump into service, you don't want to you. Good. I like that. You have no other gods. No other gods. Yeah. Somebody in the last class said, "Yeah, to, to fight against making yourself an idol." I was like, "Man, okay, maybe you should teach the class." Um, yeah. All right. So, so let me give you. Those are all good answers. And and look, I'm, I'm going to scratch the surface here. There's, I mean, we could make a list of, I mean, it could just go on and on. All right, so I'm just going to give you some kind of big overarching principles, all of which I took from the Max Licato book. All right, don't tell anybody. All right? I don't think that's on the book table. I suggest going behind their back and purchasing it off Amazon. Okay, but don't tell them. Don't tell them that because I don't want to get fired. But it was on the book table? Oh, score. Okay. All right. They're forgiven. All right. I absolve them of their sin. All right. All right. So all of these are taken out of that Licato book. And so these are spoiler alert if you've purchased that and are going to read it. When you are going to selflessly obey that first commandment. You're going to selflessly love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You need to think about your spiritual life as not being about you. And this is what I was trying to get out when we were talking about the Pharisees, that a lot of times, if you've grown up in the church and you have been good catechized, Presbyterian children's, or Baptists, or whoever you, wherever you, your feet are planted, Okay. a lot of times we start making our church... Activities about us, like we we just want people to see what a good servant we are, what a good little Christian we are. Look how much I've served. Look how much I've given. And so your spiritual life, in one sense, you you try to make it about you. It brings attention to you. And you know what? Jesus, who was God, he he didn't even do that. Let me read, and we're again, we're going to read a lot of scripture. Just jot the passages down on your outline. Uh, if you're taking notes because they're not going to be up here. I'm just going to read them to you. So this is John 8, verses 48 through 59. Alright, we're thinking about your spiritual life isn't about you. Jesus answered him. Oh, excuse me. The Jews answered him. Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Gotta love a good question. Alright. And Jesus says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one, capital one, who seeks it, and He is the judge. Jesus Christ comes, and He walks, and He serves, and He gives His life as a ransom for many, and He says, it's not about my glory. Jesus Christ said it's not about His glory. Who are we to live for our own glory if Jesus Christ considered that a really bad idea? He said, I'm here for one person's glory and one person's glory only, and that's the Father. He goes on to say in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, that you said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps My word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered. If I glorify Myself, My glory is nothing. It is My Father who glorifies Me. Jesus says, If I glorify Myself, My glory is nothing. I'm here to glorify the Father. The "...of whom you say, He's our God. But you have not known Him." We talked about that a little bit yesterday. "...I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you." Got him back for that demon question right there. "...but I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham." Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And So they responded so graciously in verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That's the battle, right? When Jesus says, hey, you can't live for your own glory. You've got to live for the glory of the Father. You've got a choice, You can pick up rocks and throw at Jesus, okay? Or you can spend your life living selfishly and die and go to hell. That's it. That's your two options. When He says, look, it's not about me, it's about my Father, and they say, let's kill Him. Remember when Jesus is praying in the garden, and He bows, and He knows what's coming, He knows that He's about to die... And he prays the prayer, God, please, if if there's any other way we can get this done, let this cup pass for me. But he ends that prayer by saying what? Not my will, but yours. Okay, not my will, but yours. Again, we see the lifelong purpose of Christ while on earth and forevermore is to glorify the Father. If you went to an art museum, you might get a guide who walks you around and tells you here's the painting, here's who painted it, here's the year it was painted, this is what they were trying to portray. Okay, so let's say we I'm the guide, we're at the art museum and I say this is Monet, it was. Pa- I don't know anything about art. Okay, so just get ready for just to this to be butchered. All right, it was painted in this year. It portrays this. It's a beautiful work of you know whatever medium, watercolors or whatever Monet painted with. Okay, and he used a brush. And end of report. Okay, that'd be awesome, right? Because he is he is casting his glory on that painting for all to see, for you to behold the beauty of that painting. But like, if he gets right here. In front of the... Make a puppet. If he gets right here in front of the painting and he starts saying, well, when I was a kid, this is what I did. And, you know, I was pretty good at, like, t-ball. And, uh, and then I got better at baseball. And he starts, like, trying to bring glory to himself whilst covering up this beautiful piece of artwork. Okay? That is what it is to, to live this life... And not glorify the Father. Like you were made to to guide people to the beauty and the splendor of God. That's your purpose. And when we live selfishly, it's like we step in front of the beauty and splendor of God and say, Look at me. And it's just as frustrating that would be at the art gallery if the guide drew all the attention to himself. It is equally as frustrating as more frustrating It's deadly for us to stand in front of God, take away the glory and honor from Him and try to cast it on ourselves. Max Locato in that book says, It's the giver of bread, not the beggar, that deserves praise. Anything that you have on this side of eternity is from the hand of God. Not because you're pretty, not because you're smart, not because you're athletic, not because you're ripped, all right? It's because God had mercy on you and He's good. So you make your spiritual life, that part where He says love you, love Him with all your heart and all your soul, you make that about Him. Next thing, your body's not about you, so if you're going to love Him with all your strength, Gotta understand the purpose of you having a body. I'm gonna read 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. This is a very familiar passage, but it's it it needs to be read. It's good. I think it will help us think through this in light of that first command. So 1 Corinthians 6 18, 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So what Paul is saying here is that your body... Is not about you, and in our culture right now, this is this is one of the great arguments for pro-choice. It's it's my body. I get to do what I want with my body. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says your body's been purchased. It was given to you as a gift. It's supposed to be there as a temple for the Holy Spirit. And so if we believe that, then we can't give ourselves to passions. We can't give ourselves to lusts of the flesh. We can't give ourselves over to sexual impurity. The other thing it it means is you can't neglect your body. You've got to take good care of it. You've got to make wise decisions and exercise and rest and food and those sort of things. But here's the thing that I think... I mean, we we know those two things. Um, I think that's clear and is talked about a lot. What we don't talk about is... Your body is not yours to draw attention to yourself. And can I say something about, you know, you you guys got all prettied up last night for the night out, right? And look, there's nothing wrong with dressing up and looking pretty, all right? I mean, I do it every day. Uh, But if your intention as you're getting ready is to put on clothes or to um, you know do your hair and makeup a certain way and you're like man everybody's gonna be looking at me I want everybody to look at me see me tell me how pretty I am then again you're making your body all about you and Paul says it's not yours it's not yours to draw attention to yourself it's yours to So that you cast glory and honor toward the Lord. You tracking with me? Alright. I've now officially stepped on some toes. Alright. I love you. Or I wouldn't tell you things like that. Alright. So your body is not about you. Your suffering is not about you. And this one's hard, okay? Because some of you have really hard stuff in your life. You've gone through it. You are going through it. It's on the horizon. Let me read you a passage in John. This is John chapter nine. I needed like fifty of those like little sticky things where you can just flip right to the chapter. But I like the awkwardness of trying to find it myself. Right? John nine one through seven. Any. As he passed by, he saw a blind man. This is talking about Jesus. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, whose sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Ah, the disciples. Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus said, Look, it's not necessarily a result of their particular sin. Although that person was a sinner, his parents were a sinner. But Jesus says, this suffering of this man exists so that I can be glorified. Max Lucado says, your pain has a purpose. Your problems, your struggles, your heartaches and your hassles cooperate toward one end and that end is God's glory. And that's really the only thing I think you can cling to in suffering that will help you get through it is that it's all there to exalt Christ. And when Paul says all things are working together for good, that's what he's getting at. Okay, If you keep reading the next few verses, your good is not to make you feel better, to put a smile on your face, to make you comfortable, to give you peace. It's to make you look like Jesus. Not just look like Jesus, but become more and more like Jesus. So when you begin that suffering and struggling and that pain I mean it's great news that God's behind that in some sense right because you don't want to go through that for nothing but know that it's not for nothing it is for a, a eternal God glorifying purpose so that when you go through those hard times you don't say woe is me Look at how much I'm suffering. Look at how much I'm giving. Look how much I'm having to sacrifice. You say, look at the Lord. And look, I'm not saying it's easy and you can't cry and be frustrated and punch holes in the wall and those sort of things. Life is hard. And suffering is brutal. But there's a reason it's going on. A heavenly, God-ordained reason. So don't make those hard times about you. Make them about Jesus. Your success isn't about you. I love the story of Gideon. This is Judges 7 and 8. I'm not going to go read it. It's, it's lengthy. Go back and read it just for funsies. Alright? But Gideon's got, I don't remember, 22 plus thousand people, men in his care, And the Lord says, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like you to whittle that down to 300. And Gideon's like, ooh, that doesn't sound very fun. And God said, and here's the reason I want you to whittle down that army from 22,000 to 300. It's so that when the victory happens, they don't think it was because of them. That's ultimately what, what the Lord says. He said, I want them to know that their victory, their success, is from my hand, saith the Lord. Let me read to you David's word in Chronicles that I think just makes this very, very clear. First Chronicles, and we are all over the place. 1 Chronicles 29, 10-13. They've gathered all these things for the temple. David's going to pray a blessing over all this stuff. Verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Now listen to this. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Riches and honor. Power and might, greatness and strength all come from the hand of the Lord. If you fall into any of those categories, it's not because you were good enough, smart enough, or just had it all figured out. It's because the Lord chose to have mercy on you and bless you in that way. So that if you're successful athletically, academically, uh, you know, with the ladies, whatever it is, okay? It is from the Lord's hand that that success comes from. It is not about you. And the Lord said, Gideon, it's not about you. It's not about the might of your army. It's about my goodness, my power, my strength. David recognizes that. Last thing here, and this one's just a kind of the summation of everything. You exist for God's glory. And like you're like, well, duh, we talked about this. We've beaten this dead horse. Okay, well, we're beating it one more time. And make sure that thing's dead. You don't exist for attention. You don't exist exist for recognition. You don't exist for RYM sports championships. Okay, so don't go out there and get all mean and ugly, building sandcastles today. Okay. Here's what Jesus says: How you ought to respond to life, to walking with the Lord, to serving Him. In Luke 17.10, Jesus says, This is how you ought to respond to the service and calling that the Lord has given you. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. You know, what frustrations come when our expectations aren't met. When we feel like we're owed something and we don't get it. Whether it's praise or whatever it might be. And Jesus says, well, you have a really bad understanding of your calling. You're a servant. You're in the Lord's army. You have a duty to perform. And so when you do that duty, just say, look, I'm an unworthy servant. Thankful to be a servant of the Lord. Alright, so that's just a little bit about selflessly obeying the first command. So what about the second command? Alright, well... This is a thought, okay? I didn't go back and like dig through the annals of time and all the commentaries and, you know, didn't summon my inner John Calvin. Okay, so just take this as with a grain of salt. But when Jesus says to us, love your neighbor like you love yourself, that's just a weird, that's weird to me, okay? A little bit. Because like, what does that really mean? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So I think, well, I mean, you know, I will take care of myself and, and look out for myself and protect myself. You know, okay, yep, all that. I think that's probably part of it. But let me, let me or challenge you to think a little bit differently maybe. I think Jesus knew how much selfishness was just ingrained in us. I think He knew. No, I don't think. He knew. Okay, He was man and He's God. He, he knew. And, and He knew how much we think about our own wants, our own desires. This is what I want out of life. I wish this was happening. I need this. I need that. I want to be comfortable. How am I going to achieve my goals? How can I... Uh, get myself in the right group. How can I avoid, you know, people making fun of me? I want to try to be successful, and we just spend so much time and energy in our thought life on those questions about us. Right? This is yes. This is no. Are we napping? All right. And so, what I think Jesus is saying is, what if you use all that time and energy and thought life about somebody else's wants, somebody else's success, somebody else's comfort, somebody else's peace, somebody else's achievement. I think that's what he's getting at when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So what might that look like? Well, first we Gladly make others glad in God. Okay, so time out before somebody comes up after me and says we can't make nobody uh, glad in God. Yeah, I know. Okay, we can't make it. We can't force it. We're not the Holy Spirit. All right, but you can do everything in your power with the help of the Holy Spirit to push those people toward Jesus and toward the joy of the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay, but I realize we physically like I can't just shake you enough to make you love Jesus but I, am by golly, can love you and serve you and think about you in a way that I hope you'll see the glory of God and run to Him. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 24. He says, We work with you for your joy. In other words, that's Paul's mission within the Corinthian church. I'm working with you for your joy. Not my joy, not my success, not so my name could be exalted, so that the church could experience joy. In Philippians he says... I will remain and continue with you all for your progress in the faith. That I'm I'm here, I exist so that you you can move forward in your faith. So he tells that the Corinthian's church and the and the Philippian church. And listen, you can't make others glad in God if you hate them. And we talked about racism, we talked about sexism, but just a little bit from last night and I Plan on beating Russ up later for stealing a lot of my thunder from this class. Um, he didn't ask me nothing, so he's just like stealing my material. So I'm going to have a talk with him. Uh, I'm probably going to need some backup, though, because I don't know if you've seen that cat's biceps. Man. Woo! All right. But if you're like, man, I can't stand that guy, or that girl drives me crazy, There's a real good chance that you're not going to spend any thought life, any effort in making that person glad in God. I could be wrong. You could be, I don't know, some kind of spiritual whiz, alright? But the person that drives you up the wall, that gets on your nerves, that rubs you the wrong way, and we've all got them in our lives, and if you don't, you're them, okay? Okay? But if that's the way you think about somebody or some group of people, you will not sacrifice anything of yours for their good. You just won't do it. It's counterintuitive. You've got to die to yourself to make others glad in the Lord. The other thing I would encourage you to do is take risks for others' well-being. Maybe you take them socially. In other words, you run with this group... This person is outside your group. And I'm not just talking like, yeah, it's awesome to go sit with the outcast kid at lunch. That's great. Yeah, I encourage you to do that. But but that's not enough. G- Listen, Jesus spent so much time with outcasts, so much time with with prostitutes and drunks, that people started saying, He's a drunk. He's a sinner. I mean, the Jews just said, He's got a demon. That doesn't come from sitting down and having one meal with the outcast kid. It comes from giving your life to the outcast kid. You tracking with me? I mean, you got to you got to be willing to give up something over here to make somebody happy in the Lord over here. You got to spend time with them. You got to have them over to your house you got to give them to ride somewhere. you got to get them a milkshake, all right? got to legitimately want to be their friend. Again, you can't go over there and say, man, I hope everybody's looking at me, hanging out with the outcast kid, having lunch with them. Man, people are going to pat me on the back. All right? You're blowing it. You're blowing it if you do that. And listen, we're going to blow it, Okay? That's the great thing. Remember, you're in the arms of the Father. So you can safely struggle. That's the awesome thing about being His kid. What about evangelism? You've got the truth. You've got the truth that separates people from heaven and hell. To not share the gospel... Is the height of selfishness. Like it it doesn't get any more selfish than that. When people's. Now listen, this is not going to sound. I'm not going to say that. This is going to sound reformed. This is how. This is as reformed as reformers get. Their eternity hangs in the balance. And you withhold the the information that will either push them toward Christ or push them into hell. And you just walk. And let me tell you, I've failed so many times in sharing my faith. I chickened out. I worried about my own comfort. I worried about they were going to reject me, make fun of me. I wasn't going to be cool anymore. I might not get to hang out with them anymore. That was selfishness rooted deep in my heart that came out in a way that is just disgusting. So you take that risk to open your mouth and say, Jesus is the answer. A couple of questions that John Piper asked How can I portray God as glorious in this action? How can I enjoy making much of Him in this behavior? Remember the uh, WWJD bracelets? Anybody wearing one currently? Okay. Because, you know, they were kind of like, these are not cool anymore. All right? At first they were like, we all got to have them, WWJD, man. If you weren't wearing one, probably didn't even know who Jesus was. All right? <laughs> Certainly weren't like doing anything for the kingdom if you didn't have one, okay? And look, you know... Maybe the bracelets were a little you know goofy, but the the heart of that question is not goofy. Like you, you've taken a bazillion notes, you can, you're not going to remember everything. The, like every situation, every every comment that you're about to say, every action you're about to perform, I mean, just run that one through through the filter. You know, is this what Jesus would be doing? Is this how he'd act? Is this what he would say? This how he would respond. Just what he would watch, listen to. It's a good question. Bring back the bracelets for crying out loud. Alright? They were good. The other thing we got to do is use our resources to bless someone, not to make a name for ourselves. And I realize you're teenagers. Probably nobody's working nine to five, pulling in six figures. So you're like, well, I mean, I'm not giving a lot to missions or, you know, to the poor or the homeless. But let me tell you how, how I see this. I've spent 17 years with students. I know. You were like, dang, I thought he was like 20. Alright? Well, I'm not. Alright? I'm older than 20. 17 years since I graduated college that I've spent with students. Either high school or college. And I've seen more uh, hurt caused over the people who have making fun of the people who have not. And just over the dumb look, look at this, this is my iPhone, okay? It's an iPhone something, alright, minus 12, I think. Um, I don't know. The screen cover's nasty, the thing, it's it's hideous, okay? And, um, but a lot of times what I see is like somebody have like the, the newest phone and they're like, can't believe you still got that iPhone 7S, or whatever. I don't even know what the numbers or the S means. Okay. And it's it's just like a gut punch to that person. And then to try to come back and talk to him about Jesus, I mean, come on. They're gonna be like, Oh, this yeah, like I'm gonna listen to this guy. He's making fun of my phone. Or or I mean it's just like, you know, can't believe you're wearing those shoes, man. And I mean it's just the dumbest thing. But it does so much harm. And you might be like, well, they're snowflakes. They're snowflakes. They just need to toughen up. Alright. I mean, you think that's, again, is that how Jesus is going to respond? Man, words mean things. They're, they're They can build up and they can tear down. And when it comes to our resources, we just got to be wise, okay? It's not like, I mean, if you got money and you can use it to help somebody, awesome, all right? But just think about if you have, and probably everybody in this room has, all right? How you interact with those who have not. Seems like a small thing, but it will tell them so much about Jesus, This one's kind of really related. Do you value mercy and love toward others over judgmentalism and put down? Holy smokes, what time is this thing supposed to be over? Oh my gracious, I got a motor. Okay? It's raining real hard, so maybe that'll buy me a couple minutes. All right. Listen, do you you value mercy and love? Because again, 17 years of uh, ministry, and I'm counting the years that I was in the classroom. this is as much ministry as what I'm doing right now. The, the judgmentalism and the put-downs, I mean, it it just drives people away from Jesus. If they know you're, you're saying, I'm a Christian, I go to this church, I represent this youth group, I just came back from RYM, and then the next thing out of your mouth is like, you're an idiot. I mean, it's like, well, that's helpful, you know? And we laugh, but like, It happens, and it's harmful, and it breaks the heart of Christ, and it breaks my heart to see that happen for nothing, for nothing. Well, don't look at that yet. Okay, that was an accident. Can y'all stay like two minutes extra? Like nobody's going to say no right now, right? It's like I wanted to leave two minutes ago, but this guy won't shut up. All right. You have? I have a really dinner with uh, I hope it's for good things. Okay, and not evil. All right. Let me read you this story because I think this kind of sums up, gives us an uh, an idea of, of what I'm trying to get at here. All right. This is again from uh, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. He says, on February 19, 1945, the battle for for Iwo Jima began. It was a barren eight-mile square island, 600 miles south of Tokyo, guarded by 22,000 Japanese prepared to fight to the death, which they did. They were protecting two airstrips that America needed in the strategic effort to contain Japanese aggression after Pearl Harbor and preserve the liberty that America cherished. It was a high cause and the courageous sacrifice was stunning. So here's here's the statistics. The hard statistics show the sacrifice made by this one particular battalion. 1,400 boys, many still teenagers. Let that sink in, fellas and ladies. 1,400 boys, many still teenagers, landed on D-Day. 288 replacements were provided as the battle went on for a total of 1,688. Of the 1,688, 1,511 had been killed or wounded. Okay, that leaves 177, not killed or wounded. Those 177 walk off the island, and of those 177, 91 had actually been wounded and went back into battle. It had taken 22 crowded transports to bring all that division to the island. The survivors left in eight ships. The American boys had killed about 22,000 Japanese, but they suffered more than 26,000 casualties doing so. It's so the only battle in the, specific, in, the, in the Pacific. There we go. In the Pacific, where the invaders suffered higher casualties than the defenders, the Marines fought in World War II for 43 months. Yet, in one month on Iwo Jima, a third of the total deaths occurred. The entire effort. They left behind the Pacific's largest cemeteries, nearly 6,800 graves in all, for your liberty and for mine. Thousands of families would not have the solace of a body to bid farewell, just the abstract information that a Marine had died in the performance of his duty. Was buried in a plot, aligned in a row with a number on a grave. Mike lay in plot 3, row 5, grave 694. Harlan in plot 4, row 6, grave 912. Franklin, Plot 8, Row 7, Grave 2189. Here's what's chiseled outside that cemetery on a plaque. When you go home, tell them for us and say, For your tomorrow, we gave our today. For liberty. Can we say that about our lives as it relates to the lost, the outcast, the hurting, the broken? Will you give today for their tomorrow of joy in Christ? It's sobering. Here's what this boils down to. John 12:24 Truly, truly I say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit Guys, we're all going to die. How's that for a pick me up on a rainy Friday? We're all going to die. But how you die makes all the difference in the world. Will you live and die as a selfish person, bringing glory and honor to yourself only, or will you be like Jesus says, a, a, a grain of wheat that'll fall, so that and die, so that much fruit will be bared? I'll leave you with this story. So close. All right. It's medieval times. It's a small European village and there's a priest there who begins to walk through the village and say, come to church tonight. We got, it's a, it's a, going to be a great service. We're going to get this special sermon on Jesus. Come, make sure you're there on time. And he goes through the entire village proclaiming you know, the, the, about this service and so people start showing up. They get there, they notice the church is pitch black dark. And so they kind of fumble their way in and sit in the pews and they're like, Ah, maybe, you know, the priest is running late, we'll wait on him for a few. And they wait and they wait and no lights. It's dark, it's getting kind of creepy. And then in, in a minute they see the, the priest kind of come stumbling in. He's making his way through the church. He gets to the center aisle and he starts walking toward the pulpit. Behind the pulpit hangs this big crucifix, cross with, with the crucified Jesus on it. And he lights one single candle, and he says nothing. And he just holds it at the feet of Jesus, and it illuminates his pierced feet. And then he holds it a little higher, and you can see the scar on his side. Then he moves it out a little bit, and light is cast on those pierced hands. And then he reaches as far up as he can. And he shows the face of Jesus hanging there on the cross. Blood on His face. Thorns in His head. And he just pulls the candle out, down and blows it out. And just walks out of the church. Folks, we exist for one purpose. And that is to illuminate Christ and His work. We do not exist to cast the light on ourselves. You and I breathe air for one reason and one reason only, and that is to die to ourselves and portray, cast light on, illuminate Christ and His work on the cross. And that's it. Let me pray. God, thank You so much. Help us to do this. This is hard. Selfishness stinks, but we love it so much. Lord, we're going to leave here. We want to do something great for You. We want to move forward in our walk, but we're going to stumble. Father, we are so thankful that You safely hold us even as we're stumbling along. Lord, if we fail in this, may we run to You quickly for forgiveness. But Holy Spirit, would You make us people willing to die to cast light on your goodness, your mercies. May we live so that others can be made glad in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you all so much for hanging in.